You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And you're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist. A podcast for human Venn diagrams. Coming at you every single Monday. And hosted by us. talking with Sydney Skybetter, choreographer, change agent, curator, and all-around human Venn diagram. No, really, he actually has one on his website to help explain all the things that he does. Yes, indeed. We kick it off with a listener question that asks how the heck you fit all of your interests into a resume, and we answer it with plenty of practical advice, if we do say so ourselves. Mm-hmm. We also get the lowdown on gestural grammar, disruption theory, the jobs-to-be-done framework, and why you should adopt a no-douchebag policy. Immediately. <laughs> also, if you've been looking to expand your vocabulary, this episode is filled with $10 words. We're going to go ahead and call them Hamiltons. And <laughs> Christine, I think I can give you credit for that one. And Thank you. they are guaranteed to make you the most impressive interlocutor in your nerd gaggle. That's right. That's what we said. <laughs> 
You're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist with Christina Wallace and Kate Scott Campbell. Hi, Christina. Hey, Kate. Hey, Sid. Hi. Hi, Sid. <laughs> Even. Good. I think we have all said hi to each other, which makes me feel at We're peace set. inside. Yes. We okay. <laughs> we can officially begin the podcast now. Yes. You are our first guest from Rhode Island, I think. I'm uh, pleased to represent the 02906. <laughs> I am so happy that you just put numbers into that response, Sid. <laughs> I like you so much for so many reasons already. Um, Kate and I keep joking about our future uh, The Limit Does Not Exist road trip. Yes. So uh, someday, if that actually happens, um, you know, we, I'm glad to know we have a reason to go to the island that is not a real island known as yeah. Road. True story. And we have lots of nerds who would appreciate the title of your podcast. So you, you have sort of a built-in fan base out here. Woo! Well, Sid, you're not only our first guest from Rhode Island, I believe you're also our first guest who has an actual Venn diagram on the homepage of your personal website. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah, no, I know. I can rock a Venn diagram. <laughs> Even better. I don't know, Kate, if you noticed this, but in watching uh, Sid's TEDx talk in prep for this, mm. you have a little Venn diagram. Is that a pin or a sticker on your lapel? It's a pin. Cause sharp eye. I also Thank noticed you. this. It is. I'm a big fan of enamel pins and a big fan of Venn diagram. Again, totally. so many reasons why I like you. <laughs> this is going well. It's going Except well. Except for our six false starts. Otherwise, it's going well. Well, you know, Sid, we thought it would be really fun because you are such a true Venn diagram uh, and someone who who seems to have truly embraced your Venn diagram ism. Now I'm making it a noun. Uh, we yeah. thought it'd be really fun to kick it off instead of an article this week with a listener question that we got sent into us at humanvendiagram.com. We have a contact page, don't we, Christina? We do. We and do. We, we and we would you use uh, encourage more listeners to send us questions at humanvendiagram.com. Yeah, we, we truly love your feedback and it really helps us know what you're hearing and what you want to hear. So should we just mm -hmm. jump into the listener question? Kick it off? I think we should. Okay, so I'm this. Down. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> As am I. Christina, are you? <laughs> I am. I am. Well, I'm sort of lounging, but you're not. You're reclined. Good. That's how I, I pictured you. So that makes me happy. Okay. So <laughs> this is from Homer. Homer, thank you so much for reaching out to us. So Homer mm -hmm. is asking for a bit of direction. He has had some wonderful things to say about our show, which we're very grateful for. And then he jumped in to say that he is a trained machinist. He has a photography degree. He's a photojournalist. He is a snowboard photographer, which sounds so thrilling. He photographs products. He's a web designer. He also seems to engineer snowboards, which sounds also thrilling. He moved to China. He speaks Chinese. He is a web developer, an entrepreneur, a UX designer, a product manager. He is a total human Venn diagram, and he's having a hard time fitting into a resume. So I have no idea why. That <laughs> seems like it should totally fit on one page, Homer. Right. Everyone's going to get it. <laughs> so he said he doesn't have the depth of a senior, quote unquote, UX designer, but he obviously can offer quite a bit more. But he's say, saying that that's hard to fit into phone interviews, video interviews, and frankly, the normal interview process, which I know the three of us can relate to on our own levels. Um, mm -hmm. So he said that, uh, you know, he imagines that to some extent, not fitting into the resume format or not being very good at playing the resume game is a frequent issue of us Venn diagrams. 
thoughts, advice, what's the meaning of life? Homer, great questions. <laughs> great questions. So, you know, really, really apropos question. I know this is something that I have and continue to struggle with. Sid, one of the reasons I mentioned your website is because in in going through a current process of redesigning mine, it is it is a mind melt <laughs> to figure out, you know, sort of how do you structure your skill set? So mm-hmm. how do we weigh in, guys? Do you yeah. even bother with a resume? Do yeah. you just point people to the website? Is the website the new resume so that you don't have to pick? Mm. Uh, I'm tapped out on, on resumes. I, you know, I, I have a CV that's mm-hmm. already squirrely enough. And <laughs> if, if, if anybody asks me for a resume, they really better need to have one. You know, is it, you know what I mean? so what, what inevitably happens is I'll, I'll, I'll sort of pick and choose from the CV as best I can. Um, but I got to say, Homer, you know, I'm of two minds here because on, on one hand, uh, when you're interviewing, uh, when you're looking for work, if the employer isn't able to handle your polyvalence, I'm guessing it's not a good fit anyway. Good like word. If, Great word. You know, polyvalence. from Najee, actually, yeah. <laughs> oh, my nice. gosh. Yeah, true story. Naji of um, our last episode, by the way, shout out, love mm-hmm, the Lanage. Mm-hmm. Keep going, yeah. Sydney. In the business, they call that a throwback. <laughs> That's right. They call it, it, it a callback in comedy. So yeah, oh, love it. Indeed. <laughs> um, so on, on one hand, that's that's kind of a you know it's a, a handy limiting agent. If they don't get you, then uh, you don't want to be there anyway. On the other hand, uh, you know, in interview environments, you don't want to be that guy who's like, I can also juggle cats, and what do you know? I speak French, and hey. I do prune my own Christmas trees or whatever. Um, like you, you can only like take it and turn it once or twice before you know folks start getting suspicious. So, so there's a, a kind of theater to this. Like you have to pick uh, relative to the potential employer, like the one or two areas of the Venn diagram that you want to emphasize, and then maybe just let the rest of the complexity fall to the wayside if temporarily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I agree with Sid on this, and I think um, you know, looking at uh, Sydney's website or you know similar websites like that, uh, I think you do a very good job of bucketing all the things you do into a couple of big headlines. And I think Homer, you've got a couple of big headlines here. One is photography, right? And you've got different elements of that with photojournalism or snowboard photography or product photography. But roughly, photography is one of your big buckets. And then you've got a bucket around sort of tech skills, web design and development, UX design, product management, even entrepreneur could fit into that bucket. Um, And then you've got this kind of global piece. You have experience in China, you speak Chinese. and, And I think you could easily sort of frame your experience around a couple of big buckets. And then depending on what the job is, uh, or, you know, project or whatever it is, you can allow that um, the additional depth of that bucket to to show them the range of your skills without overwhelming them. You know, if if the job has nothing to do with China, it, you don't need to distract them from that unless that's something that comes up naturally and you realize that that this is the thing that makes you additionally qualified or uh, or well positioned to do the work. So I think, you know, Kate and I talked about this in an earlier episode. Um, often for human Venn diagrams, it's our job to decide what gets filtered in and what is going to be distracting or feel like too much to, to Sydney's point um, that will be hard for people to understand the arc of the story we're telling them. And ultimately, it's about a story of here's what I've done in the past that positions me to do this thing for you in the future better than anyone else. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I totally agree with, with all of the above. And I would say too, Homer, when you said, you know, I don't have the depth of a senior UX designer, but can offer quite a bit more. If you're looking for a specific UX job, I think it will also really help you. And you're probably already doing this. But if you're applying to a specific company to really research what that company is, what they're looking for, and I would really go ahead and tailor the story you tell about your skills to match that company, right? So mm-hmm. like if you... You know, if you're applying for a UX position, maybe you'll lead with the UX. But then to sort of pick what what are the stars of your other skills that will apply directly to this company to enhance your resume specifically for maybe what this particular company's need mm-hmm. is, um, is another mm-hmm. way to think about it. And I do, you know, I have certainly like changed and tailored sort of my personal log line depending on what jobs I'm going for. If you're still at a, at, at a place professionally where you are being asked for a resume, you know, I Mm -hmm. think it's probably a good idea to have like a master resume that might look like your LinkedIn page and then copy and paste, pick and choose, tailor what that specific resume is going to be for Mm -hmm. that company. It'll only enhance your knowledge about uh, what you can ultimately contribute to the company. I would also say that given that you're looking to do maybe UX design, you are well positioned more than, you know, other industries to be able to demonstrate that skill set through uh, how you are you know, showing off your, your experience. So Mm -hmm. instead of handing them the one or two page resume, that's a PDF or word document, you could actually build. And I'm sure you've seen other people who've done this and, and, you know, those websites have gone viral a little bit, the website version of your resume that gives an interesting experience for the user to navigate through the story of what it is you do so that you're, you're actually showing and not telling that wide range of skills that you're bringing to the table here. I love that. I, I totally agree. You guys are so smart. I am a little redundant here. But, you know, I think UX is one of those uh, terms that is becoming less definable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that actually plays to your advantage here because mm. uh, somewhat to Christina's point, not only can you demonstrate your unique UX aptitude, but you can define that term for yourself in your own best mm-hmm. interests. Uh, and I think especially like if you're running the gamut from like being a machinist to snowboarding, like maybe that's not like a UX gamut that works for everybody. But I can think of a couple companies for whom that would be really freaking interesting. Totally. And I was going to say, too, on a general level, not speaking about applying to a specific company, but just for the embracement of your resume and sort of a, you know, a one sentence or one phrase way if you're struggling with that. I think it is great to look at each thing and say, you know, what do I love about each thing? Do they have a commonality that might take me a bit of time, a little bit of imagination to do? But, you know, am I a documenter? Am I uh, a matchmaker? I'm just using some sort mm-hmm. of general ideas, but, mm-hmm. you know, to keep challenging yourself to, to think about the through line of all of your interests. And there may not be one through line, but there might be one that sums up a lot of them, um, you know, to give you a shorthand option too. I love that. Yeah. That's why I ultimately just call myself a choreographer now. Oh, I wanted like, to ask you about you? that, Sid. Yeah. This is the perfect segue. Perfect segue. Yeah. So why, you know, when people hear choreographer, they tend to think just specifically dance, but you do True. so much more than that. So why do you still use that verb? Is that a verb, a descriptor, whatever, uh, descriptor. To, to sum up what it is you do? Because I had to redefine the term for myself, and I've gotten increasingly comfortable walking people through that 
process and arguing that my choreographic intelligence or expertise is valid, viable, and necessary in all of the fields that I work. Mm. And it's just simpler than me being like, I'm a choreographer and I'm also a producer and I'm also a you know, technology person and um, I have uh, thick glasses and um, I'm good with words sometimes on paper. And like, <laughs> yeah. it, it prevents the kind of slash artist syndrome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people want to uh, understand what I mean by choreographer or if they want me to explicate that, they can ask questions. But otherwise, I'm just going to be like, yeah, I'm a choreographer. And then let that sit until uh, I need to take it any further. I so love that tell us so a little much, bit yeah. more about the, the the dance background that you have that that ultimately you know extends into other things as you have mentioned some of those other things you do but you started first in dance we first met when we were high school students at Interlochen which is how you know Mr. Naji from <laughs> our last episode as well uh, how did you go from being a dancer and a choreographer um, as a high school student into that professionally. And then we can kind of extend it from there into all of the other things that you do. Sure. Well, so I'm a classically trained bunhead. You know, I have all of this very, yeah, I mean, it's uh, kind of funny, but it's like, I I have a a elite training in an art form that kind of peaked in the mid to late 18th century. (laughs) You know, like, you know what I mean? So I, for a decade or so, um, you know, I did the thing where I like, okay, I got a terminal degree in choreography. Okay, I'm going to live in New York. Okay, I'm going to get a bunch of commissions. Okay, I'm going to sort of be able to pay my rent, usually on time. Okay. Um, but what, what ended up happening, despite traditional markers of you know, you know, choreographic success, I realized that it's not a career conducive to, for example, having a family or, Mm. for example, being able to predict one's own professional uh, future or personal future. Mm. And uh, given incredibly uncertain times, uh, economically, culturally, uh, given that many parts of the performing arts are either imploding or reconfiguring themselves, uh, it struck me that one of the core skills that I really needed to get good at and quickly was defining my terms and using choreography and choreographic expertise as a way to explore other areas of interest. Like, for example, technology, uh, you know, broad masthead, pretty useless term of its own. But, you know, thinking about how, for example, bodies uh, and ideas constellate in space and time, I mean, for me, that's a technological phenomena. Um, the proscenium stage is a technology every, you know, as much as a point shoe, as much as my laptop, as much as the microphone I'm speaking into. These are all sort of modes of creative expression. And for me, how those things come together performatively uh, is a choreographic practice. Uh, so, I mean, it took me, I don't know, roughly two decades to figure out that last sentence. Um, but it's it's allowed me to feel empowered as an artist but also to remain curious and insurgent in my work Sid I was I was smiling and and giggling when you said bunhead first of all because I just love that term but secondly I I really relate I have an MFA in acting and had really thought that I would pursue a traditional theater path Um, and my sort of revelation that was similar to yours came when I was wearing a 20 pound dress and a corset on a proscenium stage (laughs) and thinking oh you know very much what you're saying about 
uh, all of the above, but also, you know, sort of redefining um, sure. what that can look like. So I, I am really fascinated about sort of what was happening within those two decades that you're talking about, sort of back to Christina's question of, it sounds like, did you start pursuing choreography professionally in dance? And then at some point, consulting happened? Yeah, well, yeah, yes. The short answer is yes. Um, the, the, <laughs> good question and yes. Next question. Uh, no, but what, what became clear my sophomore, maybe junior year of undergraduate school was that the career that I was being trained to fulfill did not exist anymore. And it certainly didn't exist mm. as it had been mythologized or, you know, I'd seen in, you know, the movie White Knights with Mikel Bert. Like, you know, yep. it just doesn't yep. exist. Yep. It's, um, and, and these artistic careers, uh, you know, they're, the mythology is important, right? We tell these stories and many of these uh, traditions are, um, you know, sort of passed down orally. Like there's a lot of reverence for our history as artists, as performers. Mm-hmm. But that mythology cuts a bunch of different ways. This is actually one of the ways that I started consulting within universities and institution of, institutions of higher education. I was so fascinated by the disjuncture between artistic training as it is conventionally rolled out in conservatories and liberal arts universities across the country and the realities of our creative ecology as existed 10 years ago, as currently exists and as is unraveling or revealing itself now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm I'm really interested in, on on one hand, like, yes, developing, like I'm an educator, I, you know, I'm interested in developing a curriculum and working with my colleagues to create teaching tools that address clear and present need. But I'm also really interested in how universities insulate themselves from reality. Yep. Yep. I'm deeply interested in that structural question, uh, which maybe broaches a conversation around like, you know, management um, and, uh, you know, organizational uh, behavior. Um, but these things are multiple and simultaneous and all important to me. Um, like I think of organizational design, design in choreographic terms. Um, so th- like I, I feel like this, and this is maybe broaching my consulting work as well, but I, you know, I, my being able to speak to how bodies and people represent themselves or communicate in space, in time, um, as performers, whether they consider themselves performers or not, has unlocked a great deal of work uh, in thinking about how organizations change and how they adapt or don't. I'm curious, I'm just to chime in and tack on to what you're saying. Did you did you sort of think or as you entered your studies in choreography and dance and then and then graduated i know for me i you know was pursuing theater pursuing acting and then sort of i would just have this nonprofit on the side or i would be curious realize i'm doing these other things that there was sort of a, for me and this is a very human venn diagrammy question but there was a, a moment where i said oh i i can sort of embrace all of these parts of myself did you sort of have was there a shift where you were like, yes, I, you know, I see choreography in this other way, or I love talking about organizations or everything you're talking about, or sort of, have you always embraced those ways of looking at things in yourself? Does that, and I'm going to attack on another question that I think is related to this. Oh, good. If, if you lived in an era where being a dancer and a choreographer was an actual career path that allowed you to have a family and pay your rent on time and all of those things, do you still think you would have ended up here? Do you think that intellectual 
curiosity and that sort of uh, brain power that you have still would have said, okay, but I've got to find other ways to express this, that, that dancing and choreographing is one thing I love, but mm-hmm. I have questions that I'm going to still pursue and find other outlets to, to exercise. <laughs> Those are such great questions. I, <laughs> I'm on the wrong podcast. I, I... <laughs> No, you know, it is fate, Sid. It is fate that I, you're on our podcast. <laughs> symbolically, anyway. No, those are so great, such great questions. So, uh, okay, I, I can answer that a couple different ways. Um, when I was completing my graduate studies, I was fortunate enough to study with uh, a number of um, performance theorists, uh, the late Jose Munoz among them. And I got to thinking about how... Uh, questions of privilege and class and gender and ethnicity and cultural heritage and ability and sexual orientation and whatever gender is, you know, all, how all of these things, uh, you know, perform mm-hmm. and how all of these things are understood. And there was a moment when I realized that as a straight white dude, I could buy a clipboard and call myself a consultant in anything. Mm. <laughs> And, and wow, I, so I, I, I would, you know what I mean? And like, I could print out business cards and just by dint of my physical appearance and uh, posture, mm-hmm. I could be read as a professional consultant. And I was like, on one hand, it's like, oh, cool. I can be a consultant. On the other hand, it's like, wow, that uh, <laughs> really uh, reveals more questions than it answers. Mm-hmm. So when, once I started thinking around that and uh, kind of getting more either uh, variously comfortable or uncomfortable with my own privilege, uh, you know, I started thinking about how deeply fakakted dance history is. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've always been interested in how, for example... Wait, like, I you just know, need it, to it, pause. It, That's deeply fakakted is the official term? <laughs> yeah. Um, it has the best vocabulary I, of anyone I know. And that... half of them are real words and half of them are words he makes up. <laughs> yeah, and I won't tell you uh, which is which. That's okay. Correct. I love it. I love when I hear a word I've never heard before. It's very so, exciting. <laughs> for Kakta being uh, Yiddish for... Uh, ah. yes. I, might, I might get this bleeped out, but um, be shatted, I think is roughly the... Oh. Um, and I just kind of adverbized it, which is a word that I just made up. Anyway. Um, Please continue. So, <laughs> moving swiftly along. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's kind of this canonical example, right? But like most of ballet history, which is again, sort of where uh, m- most of my uh, training is, most of my sort of uh, research interests lie, um, is ballet is like a deeply effed up art form. And, and like, you, you look at a movie like Black Swan or Center Stage and like, yeah, okay, it's gift, it's effed up, whatever, everything is effed up, but no, really. Like, the, <laughs> the aesthetic parameters of ballet performance are, like, based mm-hmm. in a kind of exploitative sex work that wow. are really, like, you, you, it's really hard to find, like, spaces to talk about dance history when you can talk about sex work. Like, I've been actually kicked out of conferences because I'm that guy who's like, y'all realize that, like, ballet has to do with gender, right? Wow. Wow. You know, you know, yeah. Whatever. So I'm getting, I'm getting a little sidetracked, but no, it's also so fascinating. these questions of, of privilege and gender and, and ways of being and ways of seeing uh, and, and deep inequities hmm. within my field 
like once you see those, you, you can't unsee them. Right. Like once you give name to those structural uh, problematics, you can't ignore them, or at least I couldn't. I, I you know, sometimes I wish I could, but I, I can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and and so my my career, especially in so much as the you know, performing arts are concerned, uh, has been to you know first research and then uh, give a kind of voice to this deeply effed up history uh, so that when we talk about the future, when we talk about technology, when we talk about emerging aesthetics and emerging ways of organizing, like we can be, you know, first in relation to something, but secondly, like maybe we have uh, an opportunity here to imagine otherwise and to do better. Like Mm -hmm. it's not just about technology for technology's sake. It's about technology for the sake of empowering folks who have uh, been systematically uh, disenfranchised over centuries. And I'm just talking about ballet. On your Brown bio, it says first that you are a technologist. What does that mean to you? And when did you become comfortable calling yourself a technologist in addition to a choreographer and and other things? That's an out-of-date bio. I need to fix that. (laughs) But I I was thinking about this in preparation for this conversation because like there there was a moment when I was doing enough like – work in design and in code on specifically on, on like online uh, website or on, on websites and application design when I was like, okay, technologist is like, it's enough of a, uh, of a bucket. And I feel confident enough in my expertise to call myself a technologist. Mm-hmm. And that is so no longer the case. <laughs> like I, I have learned enough about emerging technologies mm-hmm. that I, I now know that there are technologists who do that so, so much better than I ever did. Hmm. And I want to go to them for those sorts of, those sorts of really hardcore technology questions. Like that's not me anymore Mm -hmm. at one point, maybe, but I think I'm being pretty naive when I say that. (laughs) Well, so maybe I think you're underselling yourself a little bit here because your (laughs) TEDx talk, um, which Mm -hmm. I found absolutely fascinating. We will Mm -hmm. link to it in our show notes. Absolutely. Uh, is about how bodies are becoming enmeshed with the fabric of the internet. And specifically, you talk about it through the internet of things and robotics in the home and the need for a gestural grammar, Mm. which I I just love that phrase. Mm -hmm. And for me, to be honest, this was the first time your career made sense to me. Um, I don't know about why. Just, just FYI. Uh, this is the to, one thing you have in common with my grandmother. <laughs> but as to why a choreographer would ever get involved in technology, right? That, that was the first time that I was like, oh, right, because bodies are now going to be interacting, gesturing, sort of uh, the, the 3D space that we take up is now going to be interacting with technology via smart devices and robots. Mm -hmm. So can you explain a little bit of what you mean by gestural grammar for the audience and then sort of tell us how you fell into this world? Uh, You know, did you buy an Apple watch and get disappointed because you couldn't make (laughs) it do the things or was it like more, (laughs) more strategic than that? (laughs) Oh, you, you give me too much credit. Um, Yeah. So I guess to, to answer your questions in uh, a kind of inside out order, um, you know, I, I think that there's lots of trend lines, trend lines that uh, indicate that, you know, by the you know, close of this decade, we're going to have on average dozens of internet connected devices in our homes, mm-hmm. uh, all connected to the internet, all talking to each other in a kind of sensory mesh, all constantly surveilling our bodies for signs of intentionality. Uh, you know, we're talking about tons of bandwidth and tons of sensors and just scads of data 
about you personally. We're talking about location data, metabolic data, um, all sorts of private health data that's going to be collected uh, ad infinitum until you're dead, and even then. Um, so, you know, when I when I talk about um, you know this this future, like I'm thinking about like what it means to have refrigerators that are trying to understand what I want to eat by my facial expressions. <laughs> right. And, right. And, 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 and like that's, that's already technology that exists. Like I wish I was making that shit up. Um, so, you know, it's easy to make fun of this technology because a lot of it's hilarious and doesn't work very well, but given enough time and enough bandwidth, like it, it's going to get omnipresent, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, now when, when I talk about gestural grammar, um, you know, I'm thinking about how there is no unified spec there is no API for the body. You know, there is no uh, MIDI for movement. Uh, and thus, there is no way, for example, for Apple's uh, HomeKit to communicate with uh, Nest outside of some kludge together APIs. Um, like, there is no, like, uh, unified gesture that, for example, signifies stop hmm. or mm-hmm. indicates you want that. Or, um, you know, like, like these it's kind of rudimentary gestures that we take for granted in everyday conversations with each other. Mm-hmm. Robots, you know, A, barely understand. And B, like if you have the wrong brand of robot, like good luck getting it to understand <laughs> the gestural vocabulary for your thermostat. Like these things just don't talk to each other. Yeah. And so when, when, I, when I think about gestural grammar, I'm trying to think about like, well, what are the kinds of syntactical structures that exist in uh, you know dance performance uh, sequences of gesture that can be made to mean specific things and then how do we think about meaning and intentionality in ways that cut across conventional taxonomies of functionality like you know we're now at a point where like your thermostat uh, you know could functionally like turn on or off your car like to call it a thermostat is sort of a misnomer mm-hmm. uh, so we need to be thinking about either gestural vocabularies or, or cues more accurately that cut in between uh, what used to be a, a simple job to be done. Mm-hmm. And these are oh, cues jobs between... to be done, Terry. I, I love that you just said that. Well, you went to, you went to that school just north I of did. Boston. <laughs> Blake Christensen was one of my mentors, and that's Indeed. probably my favorite uh, um business concept uh, and, and sort of, you know, idea that, that I took away from business school. I don't, Kate, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar no, with this. No, please fill me in. Theory. My MFA did so, not teach me about jobs to be done. <laughs> yeah, mine so, neither. <laughs> one, one of um, uh, Clay Christensen's big ideas, uh, in addition to the theory of disruption, I'm sure you've heard everything's being disrupted now. He originated that idea in his doctoral thesis. One of his more recent ideas was this jobs to be done thing, which is instead of thinking about products and services from the you know the company's point of view of we've designed this product with these features and those gadgets it's going to do the following uh you know uh, whistly cool things um because you know you need more of these whistly cool things instead think about it from the consumer's point of view the customer's point of view which is like what job am i hiring this thing to do for me? What problem am I hiring it to solve? Mm-hmm. And I think the Apple Watch is a, a great example of a product that's cool, but isn't necessarily sure of the job that it's supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, it's on your wrist, it's called a watch. 
uh, it's you know it does indeed tell you the time. It also does all these other things that I guess is kind of cool to have on your wrist, but your phone kind of does that job better, especially given the size of the screen it, it has, and you know depending on how you've done your settings and and what you're able to actually utilize many of the the apps on your watch for. Most of the time, it's just easier to take out your phone and mm-hmm. do the that job with your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in many ways, our phone does the job of what computers used to do for us, like email or shopping. It does it better than computers, but the Apple Watch doesn't actually do it better than phones. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting thing around you know, are you building something that actually solves a problem and that consumers know what job they're hiring for? Or is it interesting and early adopters will be excited about it, but no one's really kind of sure where it fits in their workflow? Mm-hmm. I could talk about this for months. Yeah. The, 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 the uh, first, uh, excellent breakdown of Thank disruption you. theory and jobs to be done. That was really... Still paying off my MBA. I'm glad I still remember. Yeah. Right? It's, it's working for you. Well, but like, you know, for me, the Apple Watch actually became a lot more interesting when I started looking into the specs for the new wireless headphones. Have you? Are you guys familiar with this? Yes. No? Familiar with Only the wireless more. headphones, but not so, with the specs. Yeah. So what's... Um, so Apple, you know, there's sort of this kerfuffle, I guess, a month or two ago when Apple uh, revealed that, you know, their uh, headphones with the, you know, iPhones going forward are going to be uh, wireless. Right. Yes. There's no yeah. headphone jack. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and so this is like, you know, the Internet freaks out over these sorts of things. And, and you know, usually Apple's right and the Internet's wrong. But where those headphones get really interesting is when, you you know, you, you dig into them a little bit and it turns out that headphones are really good at or these headphones rather are really good at understanding the location and uh, sort of direction of your cranium. Um, so what, what this means is basically that your headphones, when paired with a watch, would have a really good understanding of the position of your body in real space and time without having, for example, a Microsoft Connect or without having like an Xbox uh, and a sort of sensory field um, uh, or sensor field that you have to like uh, make work for your body or make work for your living room. Um, what, what Apple's done here is created a, a class of wearables that understand the movement and motion uh, of the body in a way that I think is going to be really important when they start getting into augmented reality in a hot couple months. I see what oh. you're saying. So in terms of, because when I hear that they know where your body is and in space and time, I'm thinking, great, so we can be tracked. And, you know, then I just start getting paranoid, <laughs> which is not the healthy response to that information. But in terms of thinking about AI and and all related things like that, that makes a lot of sense moving forward, right? But your your immediate gut impulse is right on and (laughs) adhered to because this is creepy as shit here we're we're talking about yes highly intimate devices um and these are uh, again like uh, technology taxonomies that have existed for a while like we've had headphones for a while we've had watches for a while um and this is uh them using uh essentially like skeuomorphic design to usher in a class of uh, devices and uh, to Christina's earlier point of uh, answering that question of jobs to be done uh, under our literal noses. Um, It's just that that AR technology, that AR app hasn't been Mm -hmm. released yet. Uh, You know, I I listen to Horace Dedu. Uh, Christina, do you know Horace? I don't. Uh, I don't either. 
Horace Dedu um, has a podcast called A Simco. Uh, he's also he's a remarkable an- analyst that used to, I think, work at Nokia. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, he's he's also a disciple of, of Christensen's, and mm-hmm. um, I think it's based in Cambridge. But like, he has been applying disruption theory to uh, mobile. Uh, computing, uh, using Apple as a lens to sort of approach these kinds of questions. And everything I I just said, I'm basically stealing from him. (laughs) Wait, did we get a breakdown? Christina, did you break down disruption theory as well? Just or could you just for our listeners or myself who needs a refresher? I can give you a a very quick uh, version of this, which is um, so classical disruption theory basically says uh, companies follow their most profitable customers and and you know make them uh bigger and better products with more bells and whistles that they can charge even more money for them and sort of follow the premium uh offering kind of up the the pricing chain Mm -hmm. and at every step of the way sort of the the lower uh value customers that say like i don't need the business class seat i just need like to get from point a to point b uh you know is there a way that that you can serve me less cheaply and and you know kind of incumbent uh existing companies say well no we're going to focus on our more profitable customers because those are the metrics that we've been told as managers to pay attention to Mm -hmm. and so a a disruptor a startup can come in and say you know i don't have the existing cost structure the assets that i've already invested in the sort of you know existing kind of uh limitations that the incumbents do i can serve the low cost end of the market um much easier and better and so why don't i take those off your hands and you know i can be that frontier airlines Mm -hmm. uh and you delta can focus on business class and then all of a sudden they say well, why don't we do that plus one step up? And they sort of follow Mm -hmm. those low cost and low kind of frills customers up the value chain. And the next thing you know, you've got a big incumbent that has only a few customers left at the very top. And these disruptors have taken over all of the people uh, from the bottom up because they weren't paying attention to them uh, and and you know really kind of saying if you have a different cost basis if you have a different set of assets you can play differently uh, if we're we're thinking about sort of standard business metrics um, those customers are more valuable to you mm-hmm. as a startup than they would be necessarily to an incumbent right and uh, I, so I, when I, you're yeah. looking at um, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, Kodak, you know, that, that owned the film market. Uh, and then these really, you know, really terrible digital cameras first came around. They said, well, that's okay. They can take digital because those, that picture quality is never going to be as beautiful as this silver, you know, film that we produce. Right. And then slowly the digital cameras got a little better and a little better. And Kodak says, that's fine. That's fine. We still have film. Like nothing is going to ever be as good as film. And then one day it turns out you can get an 8 megapixel camera that actually makes as beautiful of a digital image as uh, you know I'm sure some photographer is going to like shoot me for saying this but as beautiful (laughs) to most people it serves you know most people as well as film ever did yeah, I believe Drake has a song about that that goes started from the bottom. Now we're here. Yeah, I think that is actually about the disruption theory. I just realized the whole team here. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years, and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Now back to The Limit Does Not Exist. 
I guess my remaining question about gestural grammar, Sid, is that you're talking about creating a gestural grammar between pieces of technology or between the user and the piece of technology or something else. Both. It's a both mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh-huh. So on, on one Love hand, it. we're talking about a massive pedagogic effort. We're talking about teaching, like, let's assume that this gestural vocabulary or this performative vocabulary comes into existence somehow, and this is at best a, hypo- a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. That has to be taught to billions of people in the next 20 years. Right. Um, so we're talking about a, a massive teaching effort. But the, the squirrelier question for now is, what are the pe- who are the people that have to be in the room? to have a conversation between, for example, Oculus and Magic Leap and Apple and Google and, uh, you know, God knows who else, um, to have this kind of middleware conversation. Like, I know a lot of developers who are basically sitting on their hands waiting for Facebook to come out with VR spec. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, whether, you know, Facebook does that, you know, well or not, you know, remains to be seen. But in the meantime, it, it's, you know, I don't know, it's stifling innovation. Uh, but it, it's definitely not conducive to this kind of meta inquiry of, okay, like Oculus and Magic Leap are going to have to play in the same sandbox eventually. Mm-hmm. What are the ways that we can all thrive in this emerging technological landscape? So, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I produce events. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I produce symposiums and try to create sites for really complicated conversations Mm -hmm. where we invite people who may or may not be empowered to make these decisions to talk about that complexity to figure out, well, what are we talking about really and who needs to be in that room? And then we schedule that meeting and then we have the same conversation again and again uh, with different people until we figure out over time who or maybe more specifically like what constellations of people need to be in what kind of room to enact this particular kind of change. Yeah. Is this what you're doing as part of your your think tank, the prior ghosts, or is that something separate? That's exactly right. Uh, the Prior Ghosts was uh, is uh, the uh, the nerd gaggle that I call home. <laughs> um, you know, uh, two or three years We're ago, we're going to have to make a vocab list. We do. <laughs> we need a glossary. I love, I love it. Yes. <laughs> but like, but what we're talking about here is like, you know, okay. So I'm I'm a professor here at Brown, right? And I'm in a performance mm-hmm. studies department, and I'm like, I'm the choreographer who like thinks about robots like i don't belong here but like i don't, I don't belong anywhere else more mm-hmm. and, and so the prior ghosts um was a kind of social initiative to on one hand like find friends <laughs> like find people who <laughs> are, are similarly uh t- taxonomically challenged uh to find human venn diagrams who are interested in these kinds of questions um but also to start creating a rolodex of people who have very particular but highly unconventional skill sets. So like if you if you were to ask me as you know happens apparently because it's my job now. Like if <laughs> if you were to ask me like can you point me in the direction of an ethnographer who has expertise in musical composition? I can do that. <laughs> uh, and and that's a kind of skill set that is yeah. currently getting hired at Oculus at Magic Leap because oh, wow. 
Yeah, true story. Because we're talking about people who are not only able to create sonic environments, but you know, we're looking for folks who understand how different kind of different kinds of sonic text textures signify or are cult- culturally understood across geographic uh, parameters or across geographic terrain. Because mm. um, you know, wow. Magic Leap isn't just going to be in the United States. It's going to be right. in Thailand. It's going to be in Australia. It's going to be in right. Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like the, the prior ghosts in essence, was like, yeah, it's, it's a drinking group, but it's also an attempt to cohere a kind of expertise or the kinds of expertise that are going to be needed in the next 10 years. The, this yeah. is fascinating to me because when you when you were talking earlier about the sort of gestural grammar, it, it occurred to me that, that, you know, there isn't even like a universal way to like flip someone the bird, you know, exactly. all around the world. <laughs> um, and like, is, the, the, you know, the advent of the Internet of Things and robots means, are we going to come up with like a global vocabulary, at least physically, to say stop and yes, more, you know, screw off, whatever those things are. Are we going to come up with some like you know, general way of exactly? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I hope not. But that's that's where we're uh, trending, you know. That, that, that so so much of the sort of history of of um, you know the design of technology or design of like a computer hardware is about creating standards and then enforcing them. Uh, like you know, the mouse is a mm-hmm. kind of metaphor that we have globally adopted and for the you know for the most part understand to it's be a prison. It's a prison, I tell it, you. Exactly <laughs> right. Um, it's a productive prison. Mm-hmm. But we are, uh, you know, and, and Apple's um, been better at this than most, but like, you know, the, the trackpad on my MacBook Air, there's like maybe two or three dozen gestures that this thing is capable of registering. And I only know like maybe two or three of them. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like we got a lot of work to do. And this is yeah. just like a trackpad. <laughs> Sid, since you mentioned, and it's true, that you teach at Brown, what, what do you love to teach? What, what is your sort of favorite thing to educate your students about? I'm of two minds here. On, on one hand, there is so much necessary work to be done in teaching dance technique. Hmm. And, and so I teach uh, a wide variety of uh, dance techniques uh, ranging from uh, ballet to contact improvisation. Mm. And I, I think that my students who are, you know, not dance majors by any stretch, you know, they're, they're you know, they're majoring in astrophysics and <laughs> brain stuff. Like I, I assume brain stuff is a major, I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's round. Things are a little squirrely. That's um, true. You know, um, but, you know, being able to, work in kinetic intelligence and in things like posture and physical presence, mm. these these are skills that uh, pay such dividends, um, not only in terms of their ability to like carry themselves through life, um, but in terms of being able to bring their embodiment to things like job interviews or to things like their work, um, mm-hmm. or just to think about their, you know, the, the way that their uh, embodiment affects the world they live in and observe. Um, so like, I, I take... I take dance technique and teaching dance technique really seriously. On the other hand, I teach uh, histories of performance technologies. Um, I, you know, I teach a seminar called Affective Machinery, uh, which is essentially a, a kind of uh, genealogy of uh, performance technologies from the proscenium stage through to virtual reality uh, that talks about how uh, you know iterative. Uh, evolutionary moves in uh, production technology uh, create 
new categories of art. Mm. And okay, I think that sounds at, like a really cool class. Yeah, <laughs> super cool. I'm, I'm biased, but I agree. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and ultimately it's, it's to answer this question of like this question I've been asking my entire career, which is like, what, what does it mean to be a choreographer right now? Like, yeah. what does it mean to be an artist right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how can we have an artistic practice or how can we call ourselves artists if we're not able to define for ourselves what that term means? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ultimately it's, it's a class that's about a certain kind of empowerment for people who would call themselves artists. I love that. So I think we have time for one last question yeah. before we head to the lightning round. Uh-huh. Um, I'm so excited for the lightning round. <laughs> I knew Us you would. too. <laughs> so, okay. We, we hate the word balance as it relates to juggling different interests or projects. And yet the question is often one that our listeners bring up over and again. So, how do you keep all these balls in the air, including time with your family, as you have brought up? Uh, how how do you kind of construct this life? Is most of your work project based, or do you have some consistent threads like teaching that are are consistent throughout the year, and you slot other projects in around mm-hmm. them? I, I mean, I guess maybe putting it another way, is it is the key to being a human Venn diagram that you own control of your schedule? Mm. Well. To start, I, I, I share your allergy to the word balance. <laughs> that, that that strikes me as some like Greco-Roman nonsense. Like that's like some like <laughs> neoclassical bonkers useless. Like I, you know, I, I'm not into that. I, you know, I'm I'm, in, I'm into equilibrium. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm in I'm into health. <laughs> I'm into being happy. Mm-hmm. And if, if if those are my guiding principles. Um, and those aren't my only guiding principles, but they're, they're certainly, they, they are certainly principles that inform what work I say yes to or uh, decline. You know, one, one of the most important rules for me, whether we're talking about questions of like, you know, work-life balance, whatever that means, um, or just, you know, what kinds of work do I take on? Um, I have a strict no douchebags policy. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it has taken me years uh, to, to figure this out. Um, I don't, I just don't work with douchebags. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't do it. It's never worth it. And especially now that, um, you know, I, I have a child, I, I, I don't have, I literally don't have time to, uh, you know, be subjected to other people's nonsensical and offensive behavior. Mm-hmm. What do you I, do? I just, have, have you ever been, oh, have you ever sort of found yourself within a process of a good bit of ways in and realize that you're working with a douchebag? Oh, absolutely. What um, then, Sid? What then? Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it all depends, right? Like sometimes yeah. you have to be patient mm-hmm. and have an exit strategy. Like yeah. I'm not going to uh, break a contract because I don't like you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I might not work with you again because I don't like you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but the, the other side of this is also important. Like if I'm that douchebag, <laughs> I, I I mean, I mean this in all seriousness. Like, if if I'm being a douchebag, like I want to surround myself and work with people who are willing to be like, you know what, Sydney, you're kind of being a douchebag right now, and and, and here's here's why. Or maybe more specifically, like here are moments when your work or productive uh, output or whatever don't jive with your stated politics. 
can we talk about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 so, and so that speaks to a kind of class of uh, professional relationships or uh, business partners. That's like, it's pretty specific. Like it, it speaks to a, a pretty specific uh, shared cultural capital mm-hmm. um, it, the abs- in the absence of which I don't want to do the work and just won't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you plan your year? Or do you base your year around the school year being being a, a teacher at Brown, professor at Brown, or or do you sort of just take it moment by moment? Where do you find a cadence, yeah. or do you I mean, have one? My kid needs to get kid picked up from kindergarten pretty regularly. Totally. Uh, I plan. <laughs> Kids are great in um, that way. <laughs> and in many yeah, ways. well, they they are. Um, yeah, but like you know, my, my calendar extends through 2019 at this point. Like mm. I, I just can't afford to be loosey goosey with. Uh, my life because it's just not my life hmm, anymore right. it's it's our lives right yeah. um but e- even more to the point like like there, there are some people who can improvise um and do really well for themselves and uh by by improvise i mean um sort of jet off to do a thing and then come back and then find other work and then not have work for six months and then be okay with that mm-hmm. and then like like that's just not something that I'm comfortable with, or, or maybe mm-hmm. it more specifically, it's like, I, I have a cost structure that isn't conducive to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of that is, you know, makes me conservative. Like I have a mortgage and like, I, I have to take on certain kinds of projects and say no to other kinds of projects because of my yuppie lifestyle. <laughs> um, but, but I think there's a politics to that too. It, it, yeah. it, for me, it's about making sure that every dime I earn goes back to my son's education mm-hmm. that create, you know, that he is afforded every privilege uh, that I can imagine or find. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's all the more important, I think, because of the, all of the crazy, I don't know, crazy seems too diminutive. Mm-hmm. All of the very real tectonic shifts happening in our country right now. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't want to like put that out there by shorthand, but like, you know, my son, you know, he's a boy who wears dresses. Mm. <laughs> you know, he, um, the the incoming um, you know, uh, um, education secretary, mm-hmm. um, like, doesn't believe in his core humanity. Like, like that that that's kind of a, a problem for me. Yeah. Um, but it it means all the more that as an advocate, um, as somebody who has amassed a certain amount of privilege, like I need to spend that privilege. Like I need to hustle in the service of certain political agendas. Otherwise I'm just wasting my time and yours. Hmm. I, I love that. I think all those things are pretty about. specific guiding principle. Yeah. I, think I, I just, I love how clear it is for you. And, and, you know, we've talked quite a bit on the show about um, letting your values guide your choices. Yep. And when you have that true North that is just so clear and specific, it makes it very easy to decide what you will do and what you won't. And I love Absolutely. that. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I also agree that, you know, having like a certain monthly number to hit or, you know, whatever yearly in terms of income as an artist, it's been very empowering for me in terms of picking projects, claiming worth, deciding what's worth it, what's not. It's a positive for sure. Um, well, to say nothing yeah. of uh, our history as performing artists, which suggests that our time is basically worthless and mm-hmm. that we are completely expendable. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sydney, it is time for the lightning round. 
so excited. Which is which is always <laughs> just it feels like it just came in a second because there is so much so much more to discuss and sink our teeth into. Um, but Sid, you do you know the rules of our lightning round? It's pretty simple. <laughs> Why don't you uh, walk me through them for the sake of the audience? I'll walk you through them for the sake of the audience. Again, we are going to ask you a handful of questions. You have not seen these questions in advance. Uh, You are going to give us your quickest, uh, most instinctive, uh, short response Uh, And that's how it goes. And we are going to do our best to not ask you follow-up questions, which is an Mm -hmm. ongoing struggle. (laughs) A a first-world problem, but a problem nonetheless. (laughs) So (laughs) true. It is an actual problem. It it is an actual problem. So I will kick it off. Sydney. Go for it. What are you reading right now? I am rereading Simone Brown's Dark Matters, uh, which is a, a... book about the evolution of surveillance technology Mm. from uh, the Triangle Trade um, to uh, Ferguson. It's um, an astonishing book by a phenomenal um, educator and activist. Um, I can't recommend it enough. Simone Brown, Dark Matters. Fabulous. We'll add that to our book stack. Uh, Okay, next question. What is the last thing that made you say, wow? My son put on sunglasses as part of his outfit this morning. (laughs) Like it wasn't like, Oh, it's sunny. I'm going to put on sunglasses. It was like, no, the sunglasses were a necessary part of the outfit. (laughs) And I literally said, wow. (laughs) 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 Like that literally happened. I I wish I had better words for it, but sometimes wow, we'll do it. Oh, okay. I know this is illegal, but was the wow because your kindergartner is cooler than you or just because you're like, wow, those sunglasses were perfect. Mostly perfect. because the sunglasses were perfect. I've known for years now that he was cooler than me. Okay. Okay. This was not a revelation this morning. This, over it, it, right. That, that revelation happened um, maybe four years ago when he turned okay. one and we realized that he could color coordinate better than I could. Oh, my gosh. I need Amazing. your son in my life. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. This one uh, we concocted during this interview. What is your favorite word? <laughs> You know, it's a classic, but for a reason. I'm going to stick with fricacta. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to stick yeah. with fricacta because it, 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 it. On one hand, it has enough sort of vowels to be like really satisfying to say, yes. but it has a lot of like really sort of toothy consonants oh. that um, you know kind of gets across its meaning, meaning even if your interlocutor doesn't speak Yiddish, which is usually the case. This is one of the things I loved when I first moved to New York. Um, You know, I'd never really experienced Yiddish before I moved here. And yet I somehow understood exactly what every word meant. It's very uh, transliterative. I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for, but it just it somehow makes sense. I I I just had to look up interlocutor. I never knew that's how you pronounce that word. That's it amazing. No, 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 it is. I, He's I think a straight it, white man. He said it with, uh, with confidence. It must no, be. No, it is. It's a true. I actually own like seven clipboards. Oh my gosh. I love a clipboard. Okay. 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 Sorry. We're Big getting off fan. track. Okay. I'm sorry. I started this. Christina, um, okay. you're up. Question four. <laughs> what is a place that you are dying to choreograph a dance in? I'm going to say virtual reality. Yes. Ooh. Great you know, answer. Yeah, well, you know, some folks have tried this, but like so many of these things end up looking like, you know, the sequel to Lawnmower Man. Oh, like, no. like there, there, there is some, it's not a good film. It that exists. It's called Lawnmower Man 2 Job's <laughs> War. I can't recommend that enough. Um, 
you know, but like there, there are lots of like technological difficulties with that currently, but like, you know, these, they're, they're solvable problems. I, I think it's only a matter of time um, before um, either I get the research funds or somebody else gets the research funds to choreograph uh, a, a meaningful piece of dance art that exists exclusively in virtual terms. Well, you know, we had uh, Eugene Chung, CEO of Penrose Studios, on the show. Uh, we, we can make that introduction if you want to oh. pitch him on why they should do a dance piece next. I am fully down. Absolutely. <laughs> TLDNE gets a circle. I love it. Yes. Okay. And last, bring but, it home. last but not least, shout out for a woman who's doing awesome things in choreography. So, so many. Oh, my God. I, I only get one? <laughs> you get to just only give a, a, just a little extra love to, to uh, a lady in choreography. It doesn't know, mean you don't love them all. Okay. It's going to give a little extra zhuzh. You know, I, I have to shout out to Kate Leidenheim. She's actually been covered by Forbes. She and I share the, the distinct honor of being, to my knowledge, the only two choreographers covered by Forbes in recent memory. Oh, um, I love that. She has been doing um, a lot of work recently on uh, Adon- Anonymous and uh, oh, cool. using their kind of mythologizing and uh, their organizational structure and indeed some of the like characters of anonymous which is of course is a a plural kind of pseudo collective um as a kind of generative kernel for her choreographic practice and in addition to doing work that has this sort of thematic um technological thematic um she's also doing some phenomenal work uh with emerging tech uh as well um her partner miles um is uh you know does some really great sound design sonic design stuff and that the two of them combined are just really tearing it up so um i'm gonna say kate leidenheim i love it you killed the lightning round and well our done. whole time together, Sydney. Thank you so much. Yes, That's lots all over of the here. Snaps. <laughs> yes, Steve, Thank our producer you. is snapping on the other side of the booth. <laughs> Indeed. Um, no, it's, it's, it's my privilege and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's, Thank you. it's been our pleasure. This was amazing. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sid. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.